Open with me, if you would, to the book of Luke. We are in chapter 9. I want to share some encouraging information with you this morning. We have at least two people right now who the Lord has recently saved, or, and I'll say it this way, it doesn't sound very Baptist, but or is in the process of saving. <laughs> Take that for what you will, but um, it's exciting to me. Um, we're going to plan a river baptism soon. It's, it's going to have to be, um, for me, it's going to have to get warmer. <laughs> But it'll be great, and I, I always enjoy when we get to do those. And we have a baptistry pool in our building, and we'd put it out and we'd use it if someone wanted to be baptized in the warm. But I do love the river baptism. You guys have converted me. I was a, I was a baptistry boy when I moved here, but you've made me country and love the, love the river, and it is nice to do that. So we'll be doing that soon. If you've never been baptized, uh, I would encourage you to consider that, and we'll get a date and find a place and get that worked out. All right. Luke chapter number 9. We are in verse number 28. Luke 9, 28. The Bible reads, And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him heavy, were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. And while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For time together in your word today with your church. We've read your word and sang your word and prayed your word. Now we enter into the time of the preaching of your word. And we ask for your blessing upon this time. And we say as the old hymn says, All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Father, we, your church, gather around your word. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to us today. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Last week we considered, who is Jesus? So he asked, who do the crowd say that I am? And then he said to Peter and the, the disciples there, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered correctly, you are the Christ. And then we considered, well, what does this mean? As Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It means that if you want to save your life, then you're going to have to lose it for his sake. But if you're trying to save it, you're going to lose it. Well, here we find manifested before this close group of people exactly who Jesus is. This is not just those saying, this is who we believe you to be. This is the transfiguration of the Christ. 
And in a cloud, a voice from heaven of God saying, this is my son. What a wonderful, wonderful passage of scripture. And I'll tell you, it's a fearful thing to preach this passage. You don't want to mess this up. You don't want to get this wrong. And, and, and it's, just, it's just good in the reading. Just to read that it happened and to know it and to leave it there. So at that, we're going to dismiss the servant. No. I'm going to try to preach it. But I want you to, before I say any words, just to understand that the point of this passage is that there was a, a babe born of a virgin, sinless, who lived a sinless life, who healed and did good works and was the friend of sinners, who was baptized in the river by John, and in his baptism the Holy Spirit came down like a dove and God spoke from heaven. And here again we see this intimate setting between him and three close friends as God sends Old Testament prophets Moses and Elijah. They speak to him and then God speaks from the heavens. What a miraculous, supernatural, wonderful thing that was. Now we've got to determine what do we do with that. I'm going to make just two, two points to you this morning. To continue on the thought that Jesus started in the last few verses about following Christ. What does it mean to follow Christ? And we get two things here. We get prayer. And then we get transfiguration. Now, I think for you and I, the better word is transformation. But, but through his transfiguration, you and I begin to receive transformation and what a wonderful thing that is so let's consider those two headings and then we'll go so in verse 28 we see that about a week later so after jesus sits down with his disciples says who do you say that i am who do the crowds say that i am and this is what discipleship looks like now he takes peter james and john to a mountain to a mountain place for prayer and it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. So we find these three who become to be significant in the story of Christ in these special times. They're permitted, only the ones permitted, to see the raising of Jairus' daughter in chapter 8. They're here permitted to be a part of the transfiguration. And then in Later, and we see Jesus' arrest in the garden, he goes to this time of prayer. You will find Peter, James, and John there again, kind of able to go a little farther with Christ than the rest of them. So we get this impression that these three men were especially close to Jesus, forming his inner circle of disciples. One of the ways Jesus nurtures his friendship with these men and one of the ways that he prepares them for the spiritual leadership that they're going to have to fulfill is to spend time with them in prayer. What a wonderful example that is for you and I. There are going to have to be people in our lives, should we ever do anything for the Lord, that we're going to have to spend time together with in prayer. We, we do this corporately as a church. Already this morning we've had a prayer of confession. We've had a pastoral prayer. We've had a prayer of thanksgiving. This is great. But your family needs to be having prayer times. You and a friend or two, Christian brothers or sisters in the church, you need to be gathering together regularly for some sort of prayer time around such things. This was Jesus' example, and it, it needs to be ours as well. It, it's proof to us in this text that anyone who develops a closer relationship with Jesus 
is going to do it by spending time with Him in prayer. We focus heavily on the Word here. And I'm not negating that. You wouldn't even know that you need to spend time with Jesus in prayer if you hadn't been in the Word. So be reading your Bible. Be letting Him speak to you through the Word. But in addition to that, don't just be hearers of the Word, be doers. And as you see Jesus take Peter, James, and John off into this mountain to pray during this very significant time in His life, follow that example and spend significant times of your life in praying Prayer is a significant part of Jesus' ministry. We find him praying. Luke points this out any, better than any other gospel writer. About him praying before every new phase of ministry. We know this from, from other parts of scripture like 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Does anybody know that one? Yeah, some of you worded it there. When I was a kid and we had to do Bible memorization at church, it was one of my favorite ones. Pray without ceasing. I memorized that one quick. Got some points for club and candy, you know. Or John eleven thirty five. Anybody know that one? Yeah, you were one of those kids too, huh? <laughs> I've memorized some scripture. Jesus wept, pray without ceasing. Counts. But but we shouldn't neglect that verse because it's just three words. Pretty powerful words, aren't they? Pray without ceasing. When should we stop? What should we not pray about? I believe it was G. Campbell Morgan. He preached about prayer one night, and a person said to him on the on the way out, said, I agree with you. I, I, I love to go to the Lord for prayer, especially on the big things, but I kind of feel guilty when I pray to him about the little things in life. And he, in great wisdom, no doubt led by the Holy Spirit, said, Everything in our lives is little to God. There, I mean, pray without ceasing. If anybody needed to not pray going into a specific time in their life, what do we say it's Jesus? What do we testify that's the case? But what do we find him doing? This thing's getting ready to happen. And he's going and he's getting Peter and James and John. He's saying, let's pray. We should be maintaining this constant communication ourselves with Christ. This constant communion with him. And this is most necessary during these Special times in life. Times of taking up new callings. Times of fulfilling the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. We, we have times of transition. Such as school or work or ministry or marriage or parenthood. Grandparenthood. Retirement. All of these times in life should be bathed heavily in prayer. By His own example, Jesus teaches us to take time away with God in prayer. I like how uh, the, the scholar Daryl Bach gives a very good reason for why. I mean, we understand why, right? You should just pray because you should just pray. <laughs> but he gives a good why here. He says, quote, The path Jesus walks is unexpected. If disciples are to understand that walk and follow in its footsteps, they will need to listen to Him. Have you found the Christian walk to be full of some unexpected things? Surely we do. If we're going to follow in his footsteps on this walk, we're going to have to be listening to him. Well, while Jesus is praying, some unique things begin to happen. Verse 29, as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment 
was white and glistering. It's a new word for me. I guess I have read glistening all week. Does anybody here know a good reason why we should define the two differently? Okay, I'm going to think about it like glistening then. I didn't realize it till this morning that it said glistering. So forgive me for that or I would have done some word study. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So Jesus' face and his clothes became bright and glowing here. My imagination makes this bright as a flash of lightning. I think for those present, Peter, James, John, surely Moses and Elijah, this would have reminded them of previous times certain things like this had happened. Like Moses' face shined like a bright light when he received the tablets of the law from the Lord. Exodus 20, 34, if you want to look there, Exodus 34 tells us about this in verse 29 through 35. It reads, And it came to pass when Moses came down from the mount with the two tablets of testimony in Moses' hands, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them Aaron, and all the rulers of the congregations returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And till Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face, But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with them. If you're a good Jew, you you know the story. And here you stand and Jesus' face begins to shine. I think you begin to get the point as you're on this mountain in this prayer place that something heavenly, godly is beginning to happen. Now, several years ago, when I first came to Harpeth to be the preacher, we were in the older building, and it had antique light fixtures, which were beautiful. What it didn't have was any stage lighting. There was no lights over the stage. There were six antique light fixtures. And so I struggled initially with being able to pick up the words in my notes and my, the text of my Bible because of the lack of light. We had a lamp that we would sit out on the pulpit. Do you all remember that? The old pulpit had the, 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 the burgundy cloth that was draped over it and had that lamp there. I don't actually remember what happened with the lamp, but I remember a board meeting where we talked about spending some money, and back then spending money was a little bit tighter. We talked about spending some money to put some lighting in, to light up the stage, to make it easier to read from there. Now, the irony of that is here's the young guy coming in to replace Brother Rye, who was 80, who was doing fine with the lighting and reading his Bible and preaching and He wasn't as notes dependent as me, I think. Somebody had a great idea, and a family in the church gave me a wonderful gift. They purchased me an iPad back then. iPads are still, they're not the cheapest things in the world, but back then, that was a big deal. Not everybody had them, you know. And so I thought that was really neat, and I watched some videos, and I learned how to put my notes on an iPad so that I could preach from an iPad and see my notes because it's lit up. The first couple weeks after that, as people were leaving church, I'd stand at the back door and shake hands. And I got this compliment more than, more than twice. People would say, you know, you just had a glow about you this morning as you were, as you were preaching. 
And I had to confess, it was not my holiness. It was the light of this device shining upon my face. Now, I wish it would have been my holiness. But we find this with Moses. And we find this with Jesus. Why are Moses and Elijah here? Well, they, they came to talk with Jesus. Now, these two men are significant. The bodies of Moses and Elijah were never found. Deuteronomy chapter 34 tells us that God buried Moses' body. Chapter 34, verse 5 and 6. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. Elijah didn't die, but he was taken up to heaven. Second Kings chapter 2. Verse 11 says, And it came to pass as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? I mean, we know what a chariot looks like. So that's how the Bible writer describes it. But it was made out of fire, with horses of fire, and parted both of them asunder, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So he gets on this chariot of fire and goes up by a whirlwind. That just gets me pumped thinking about what... The Millennial Kingdom, the Battle of Armageddon, the return of Christ, you and I on white horses, what that's going to be like. It's going to be powerful. And if you're unsaved this morning, I want to encourage you to get on the right side of this thing. It's not going to turn out well for those in the world. It's going to turn out great for the church, the bride of Christ. Anyway, Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he said, and he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and he rent them into two pieces. Now later in St. Kings chapter 2, verse 15, it reads, And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold, now there be thy servants, fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. So they, they came to them and said, Let's go look for him. Let's put out a search party, fifty guys. And he said, no. And they said, well, let us go anyway. And he said, fine, go. And then when they came back, he says, I told you not to go. Because he understood what had happened there. God had taken him there. So Moses and Elijah, never buried uh, by human standards. Nobody knows, knows where their body is. God buries Moses for good reason. Else they would build a sepulcher to him, right? And then God takes Elijah away and his mantle falls on Elisha, and he kind of takes up that ministry. Well, these are the two guys that while Jesus' countenance is being altered, as he becomes white and glistering, these two men come and they speak with him. What do they speak to him about? Well, it's his coming death. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. He had great work to do. He had something to accomplish. It, it comforts my heart to think that here and at other times, God sends comforters, especially those who are getting ready to minister in a mighty way. God fed Elijah down by the brook. God sent Elijah and Moses here to talk to Jesus, to, to help him through this time, to minister to him. And, 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 and you know, we, we just read it, and we're going to get to it more in a moment, but 
What were his three closest friends doing? They were napping. They, and I don't blame them. They didn't understand the urgency of the situation. I think they were still in denial. They liked his living more than they could think about his dying here. But these guys, Moses and Elijah, they come to talk to Jesus, to help Jesus, to encourage Jesus. I don't know what adjectives we should or shouldn't put there as we think through that. But the point is, he had a great work to do. It's both something that Moses and Elijah would have known about because it was part of their prophetic ministries. In fact, their own salvation still depended in this moment on the work that Jesus needed to go do. You see, all the Old Testament saints died in faith having never received this promise. Moses and Elijah were saved by grace through faith in the Savior who God promised to send. We're saved by grace and faith in the Savior who's already come. But these Old Testament, Old Covenant saints were, were waiting on His first advent. Now, for Moses and Elijah, what a blessed day to get to be sent divinely to be with Him as He prepares to go and do this saving work. This leads to his transfiguration. We pick up in verse 32 as during this we find that Peter, James, and John had been sleeping. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Can you imagine their surprise upon waking up? I mean, you guys take naps and sometimes you wake up and you are surprised. One of you men in our church told me about your favorite way to go deer hunting is to go out into the woods, cover yourself up in leaves and take a nap, and you wake up and sometimes there's a deer standing there and you shoot and kill that deer. That's a great surprise upon waking up. Well, for Peter and James and John, they wake up and there you're seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and this is in the, the moment of Jesus' transfiguration, shining, glowing, something supernatural going on. J.C. Ryle writes here, Let it be noted that the very same disciples who here slept during a vision of glory were also found sleeping during the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Flesh and blood does indeed need to be changed before it can enter heaven. Our poor weak bodies can neither watch with Christ in his time of trial nor awake with him in his glorification. Our physical constitution must be greatly altered before we could enjoy heaven. In verse 33, Peter recognizes this is a momentous occasion, and he decides something significant must take place because of this. How very human of Peter. How very like us. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Luke comments there, Peter said this not knowing what he was saying. Well, that never happens. Peter's idea that we should make three tabernacles here never happens. Now, we know from Moses' story that this is not what God wanted. He kind of hid Moses' body away so people wouldn't do this. But here again, Peter decides, well, this sounds like a great idea. Verse 34 says, while he spoke God intervened so what Peter humanly would have mistakenly tried to do God stopped doing but even in that I want us to see some key lessons learned from from what Peter had said versus what God does here 
And they're about commitment. First, I wanted to point out to you that commitment to Jesus is not commitment to a sacred place with its sacred memories. We often like for it to be that. Our church is a good example of that right now. We, some of us just this week have had the conversation of, I can't wait to get back to Butterworth Road. And I think that's okay. I don't think, I'm not saying that that's completely a negative. But if you can't be spiritual here, then you're not truly being spiritual there. That's the point I want to make. Commitment to Jesus is not a commitment to a sacred place. Jesus, uh, Peter says here, let's, let's, let's make this place sacred. For your sake, Jesus. I don't ever want to forget this. Now, all through the Old Testament, we see that kind of being the way they did it, right? We're going to stack up these stones in this place as a memorial. We're going to keep these well dugs in these places because of who dug them. It's a very important thing to do, but what we must never forget, and the transfiguration reminds us of, is that we see something that's had to be illustrated physically, that's very spiritual. Now there's a transfiguration, there's a change And things that are spiritual can now be seen in the physical because the spiritual can be back a part of us. We're the enemy of God, but now we're again the friends of God. How? Through Jesus. We're separated from Him, but now we can be brought back together through Jesus. That is what is happening here. So commitment to Jesus is not commitment to a sacred place with its sacred memories. The second point that I would give you there is that commitment to Jesus is commitment to a mission that never lets a follower remain in one place. We're marching to Zion. We're pilgrims on a path. We're on the way to the celestial city. We are are not to stand still. We are to be moving forward. But often in our humanness, We want to stay here because we like it here. We don't want to move on from this. And and we want to make this place sacred. We want to make the memories of this place sacred. Brother Scotty and Miss Penny, we were part of a great revival in Chattanooga in the 90s. How many days did it go? Uh, About three months. Three months. It was planned to go how long? One week. Going to have Ralph Sexton Jr. come in and preach. Have a big time, feed him some nice meals, put him in a nice hotel, give him a big love offering. Bow out our chest and say, we've done something for the Lord this week. He preached us some great sermons and we took care of God's man. Sounds great, right? But the Holy Spirit moved in. And at the end of it, they just kept having church. People didn't go home, they just kept coming back. People that weren't invited showed up to the back doors and came in and said, i got to get saved. Truck drivers driving through Chattanooga were listening to the radio broadcast as they came through, heard what was being said and going on in this sermon, pulled their trucks up right in front of the church and came in and were saved. There's a picture of Brother Scotty and the other associate pastor. I don't know who it was, but they're having service and people are wanting to get baptized so quickly that he didn't get to quit baptizing all night. He just stood there and baptized and baptized and baptized all of these lost people wanting to come and get saved. And for three months this goes on. Praise the Lord. But as humans do, we stopped it at some point. The Lord stops things. I understand that. But we wrote a book about it. It's a good book. You can read the book. And we memorialize it. I'm doing that right now. It was neat. 
I remember, I wasn't a part of it, but I remember when I first got the book and read it, I was like, that's great. I want to be a part of something like that someday. But if we're not careful, we're just happy that it ever happened, and we don't look for it to happen again. The church Shanae and I grew up in, in the early 90s, a very similar thing happened. A preacher named Sammy Allen, North Georgia mountain preacher, who would quote scripture, his whole sermon. He would quote books of, whole books of the Bible. It was amazing. Great preacher. He'd walk around. He'd go up and down the aisles as he, as he preached there, just all over the place. I remember as a little, I was a teenager one time listening to him preach, and I liked this girl in our church youth group. And they took the kids to the morning service at Shanae's church. I didn't go to her church yet. And I was sitting next to my girlfriend, you know, how these things go. I guess we were sitting too close because right in the middle of this guy's preaching, he walks up and he says, man, uh, not man, he said, young lady, get your Bible out. Put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John between you and that boy. <laughs> oh, man. Felt really guilty. He was right. I didn't have spiritual things on my mind. But I don't, do you remember how long that revival went? It was 40 or 50 days or something. And just amazing things happened. I remember one night, someone just got up in the middle of that revival and said, um, so-and-so's house is burned down and I just feel like we ought to do something. And everybody said, yes, we should. And they like replaced the house that night. Just took up the money and built these people a new house. Just, just like that. I don't think there were enough people there to be able to afford to do that. If you'd, have, if you'd have looked it over. It was the Holy Spirit. It was God doing what God does supernaturally. In a negative sense for our church, we, got, we liked that so much and we got so used to that that we could never normalize again. We, we just kind of, it either had to be that high or nothing from then on and it just wasn't always practical. I think we killed our preacher with that expectation. We wore him out trying to keep something like that going. That was sort of the spirit of our congregation there at that church was a, a revival, a, a camp meeting, an excitement, an exciting time. But over the years, while we were trying to build a memorial to what had once happening, we began to manipulate what was actually happening. And it quenched the Spirit of God. Peter, in a very well-motived way, says here, Jesus, in our commitment to you, let us build these sepulchers. But God intervenes. And I'm glad that he does. While he thus spake, verse 34 said, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. God intervenes. But we learn about commitment. It is not to a sacred place with sacred memories. And Jesus doesn't allow his followers to reign in one place. Phil Riken writes well here. He says, Jesus does not need a shrine. He rejects any attempt to localize him or institutionalize him. To lock him into a particular religious experience or a devotional routine. He refuses to be worshipped according to human superstition. Most importantly, he refused to be dissuaded from the sufferings of the cross. Praise God that he did. Because if Jesus had stayed on the mountain, it would have delayed his departure and possibly even bypassed his exodus altogether. Jesus needed to come down from the mountain and finish his saving work. It was only after he died for sin that he would be revealed in his full and final glory. If we stay here, where are we not going? 
While Peter is still laying out this plan, we see God speak. Verse 34, they enter the cloud. Verse 35, there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Now a cloud is also significant. Same as the shining face. A cloud had led Israel away from the holy mountain and into the wilderness and through the wilderness. And now we see a cloud lead the disciples away from the Mount of Transfiguration and on to Mount Calvary. The cloud assured God's people of his presence. It also prevented them at the same time from seeing his full face and seeing all his glory, which humans could not at this time. The cloud enclosed the disciples so they could no longer see the glory, but could be reassured reassured that God was present among them. This reminds us of the Exodus narrative from Exodus 18 to 24, as God spoke from a cloud to reveal his nature and to reveal his will. And so they see, they see that cloud here in the transfiguration, and it ends as the disciples hear the divine voice from the cloud, as God himself from heaven answers the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God, chosen by God to complete his plan of redemption and salvation. And he completes that plan by being the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, who hath believed our report. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? God's people must listen to him. God says that here. This is my beloved son in verse 35. Hear him. There is no need to build tabernacles and hope that Moses and Elijah will return. Because their day has passed. And now their voices are drowned out by the voice of Jesus, the chosen son. And commitment to God means listening to His Son. It is not sacred memories of sacred places and sacred times. It is not staying in one place. It is moving forward as led by Jesus, God's Son. Verse 36 is where we end. As soon as God has finished speaking, we find Moses and Elijah gone. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close, and they told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Jesus is standing there alone. It's going to be like that in the kingdom. He will have the preeminence in all things. He will not share glory. These disciples leave here with a sense of awe so profound. They didn't even discuss these events with other people. Well, I would say this morning that we can have spiritual transfiguration in our daily walk with the Lord or at least transformation and scripture tells us how we looked at Romans 12 last week a little bit I'll, I'll use it again today Romans 12 1 and 2 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Are you being transformed like that? Are you dying to self and living unto Him? Is your mind being renewed by the Word? 2 Corinthians 3.18 is another good proof text. As we talk about spiritual, personal transformation, Paul says to the Corinthians, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord 
are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. As we surrender our mind, our bodies, our will, the Lord transforms us from within so that we are not conformed to the world. And as we behold Him in the glass, the mirror of the Word, we are transfigured by the Spirit from glory to glory. And we call this sanctification. The theological term that we're taught in Scripture about this process. This process by which we become more like Jesus. This is what God wants from you and I. This is why He saved you. He saved you to sanctify you. In fact, the Bible is, te- teaches us that it is predestined for you to be sanctified. It's predestined For the elect to be conformed to the image of Christ. Meaning, at your conversion, you enter into a path where you're going to be made like Christ. It's a great blessing. But have you ever been involved in a situation where you knew it was going to go one way, but you resisted it anyways? You tried to to make something else happen? Sometimes you just can't. Sometimes you just kind of got to go with the flow. You've got to go with the current instead of against the current. And some of us, I think, are naturally wired to try to go against the current. Well, this is one current you can't go against. If you're going to be saved, that means you're going to be made like Christ. Let it be. Be like Christ. Get in the Word and pray and be around other Christians who are being made like Christ. Let him take things from your life. Let him put new things into your life. Let him mold you and make you as a potter does the clay. Romans 8, 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's a wonderful thought there. I think we have an idea of what he's like and what we're being made into, but we still haven't seen him as he is, so we don't know what we're going to be like. Praise the Lord. Because I, I, my imagination's carnal, so it's not going to be enough. So what do we do? Well, we pray. And in this praying, we allow ourselves to be transformed, sanctified. And we go doing, as God says here, Listening to his son. Let's stand and pray. Gracious Lord, you are so clear to us in your word and we praise you for that. Help us now to be doers of the word and not hearers only. It is so easy for us to even memorialize a worship service like this and to say, Okay, that was good, and I, and I did it, and I was there, and I've checked that off the list, and all is well. But that's not what you would have. You wouldn't have us to stay here. You would have us to go forward with the, the Word of God burning in our hearts that we've just heard and live for you in some way. So help us right now to commit ourselves to prayer. Help us right now to stop resisting transformation and embrace it, and help us to then go listening to your son. Lord, what would you have us to do? And this we pray through Jesus. Amen. Let's take time and respond to the word.